0: Hello and welcome to the Voice Magazine podcast. My name is Elle and I'm your podcast host. And today we continue the International Women's Day and Women's History Month takeover from all of the women from Voice as we dig deep into representation and stigmatized issues. Welcome to the podcast, Nikki. Could you please introduce yourself?
1: Okay, hello, I'm Nikki West. I'm arts editor for Voice Magazine. Um, I work as a freelance copywriter and editor, and I also run an independent publishing press called Brudica Press, uh, where we publish women's women's writing of all sorts, so that's fiction or speculative non-fiction.
0: And what's beyond your mind for Women's History Month and International Women's Day?
1: Oh, goodness. Uh, so much. <laughs> um, yeah. Quite hard to articulate. It's kind of what what route do you go down? Um and lots of frustrating things that I don't know if I've got any answers to obviously that the most prominent thing lately has been um the case of Sarah Everidge um yeah tragic murder disappearance and then murder that felt particularly strange and close to home obviously any scenario like that is worrying and concerning but because that's in my local area as well and it, there was lots of there's lots of posts in um, local forums I'm in mean, and around our park and WhatsApps groups, kind of saying my friend's missing. Have you seen her? And I didn't. I honestly didn't think much of it. I thought she'd just turn up within a day. And then obviously the news came out of what really happened, um, which has sparked a whole wave of thoughts around frustrations with street harassment and women's safety and and yeah and that, that kind of frustration, which I've been <laughs> I've been reluctant to delve into. But then since I. I've been reluctant to open that door in my mind again because I feel like I kind of managed to close it a bit. But now it's open again. There's a lot of, of anger there with nowhere to direct it.
0: Yeah, it's very scary for women everywhere, particularly... As you say, if it's in a local area, like seeing those posters and those posts, must have added such another personal layer
1: to it. Well, yeah, also because it could easily have been me or my friends. I was talking to my friends about it, and we said, you know, we've walked that way. I could see myself walking that way at that time of night. It's it's well lit. It's a decent area. It you know, it's walking home alone in the dark anyway is scary, but that's not a particularly scary area. It's just that's what's more. been so it makes me think of so many times where I've been in situations where I think is this dangerous is this uneasy no I'm just being paranoid because women are told not to You know, not to do things and to censor our behaviour, but actually, maybe we're not being over paranoid.
0: Yeah, I think that's perhaps the only positive to come out of the ninety-seven percent statistic is that for once, it's not just a women say this; it's just a fact.
1: Yeah, exactly. But and what I've been getting a little bit frustrated and not sure how to express this, but with the whenever something like this happens with the place where the onus of the narrative lies is now women having to share their experiences and to reopen those wounds and say, yes, this did happen, you know, these details happened to me and this is the explicit details of what happened to me. The similar case with the Me Too movement, um, which obviously had a really positive impact on changing things for women. But... (laughs) What frustrates me is that I think obviously these things have been happening. We, you know, all women know these stories. We know these details. Why do we have to? It, it's in danger of becoming voyeuristic by having to share and re, recount your experiences just so that the wider world can go, oh, OK, it does really happen. Now I believe you. It needs to like shift from that that victim narrative onto, OK, well, what what can we as men and the wider society do to, to stop it and why is this happening and kind of not dwell too much on the details of the victim's experience. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, do you think from this, there will be a place for
1: progression? Um, I would like to hope so, but I, I still dwell on the Me Too narrative that I still feel like is jammed in the wrong place. It's still stuck on, this is about women, let's talk about women, let's talk about what women have been through. Which obviously when you haven't had a voice, for a long time, it it is a positive thing for people to share. But I don't think people shouldn't be sharing those experiences. It's just the media wave of the call for that collective experience. It puts the onus on women to talk about their trauma and open that wound and just share. And it needs to. We need to get beyond that now. Yeah, a
0: lot of it's such sensitive information. They can be hard, even for celebrities to obviously open up about their experiences with it. Yeah. What
1: would be your ideal way forward from this? Oh, see, this is what I mean. I don't have the answers. I've got all the frustrations and the rage, as many women do, of, especially of years and years and years of collective experiences or added-on experiences that just make this sort of thing feel overwhelming. I don't know if I have the answer, but I know that we need to... the The narrative needs to come now from men, I think, and how to... I think we need to look on a number of different layers one of them starting with this kind of casual rape culture that we seem to have even in corporate office environments i think the kind of language we have and the yeah the way the way it's become a bit of banter um, to endorse this kind of rape culture and learning how to call, especially in male environments, call mates out on inappropriate behaviours. And also looking out for unwanted conversations. So there's a, this is the other thing I've been thinking about lately, is the need for politeness as a woman, as a defence mechanism. And I, I keep seeing arguments about, oh, you know, women, women should be aggressive towards people who bother them in the streets and you know and that and we should learn to fight back
0: so i think particularly you know any woman knows that if you be aggressive towards somebody coming against you you're putting yourself in a more vulnerable a more dangerous position i definitely think that's at least what you're told growing up it's like the the societal norm if you're just polite and try to be demure or not cause a problem then everything will just go away
1: yeah exactly and even like from personal experience there's been a handful of occasions where I've tried to be aggressive or lost my temper and the situation has got worse and it makes me sad but so I've got a two and a half year old and it makes me sad that I would need to do this but I think I will teach her to be polite as a defence mechanism because it buys you time to escape the situation but um, relating that sorry to, to being harassed and what we can do about it I think we need to start a narrative around how do we identify someone who's in an unwanted conversation in public or on, on public transport and who you know as a, as a man what can you do to step in and help that because it's it's quite an ambiguous thing if you see someone sort of smiling and trying to have a polite conversation but end the conversation but that woman's uncomfortable I think we need to look at those sorts of scenarios because there's been a number of occasions where I've been stuck with someone that I really want to leave me alone and you ask politely and you know from a outsider point of view especially as a man who might be oblivious to the actual experiences that women have they might not think or recognize that person would want help or to step in.
0: That is a very valid point and I think it's some really good food for thought for people who perhaps previously haven't considered that as well.
1: Yeah exactly and just believing your friends like the amount of male family family members I have or friends that sort of question you know if you've had a experience and you say this frustrated me and they're like oh maybe they didn't mean it that way or it should be a compliment or something
0: yeah they're so quick to defend people they don't even know that's what I've noticed
1: yeah or assume assume that you're misinterpreting it when you know especially when you've had years and years of experiences of it you know that that person meant it in a certain way
0: yeah I do hope that is something positive to come from all of this is that these conversations open this up to perhaps people who made those comments and yeah
1: and the the impact that they might think that they're just being innocent and but the wider impact that something like that can have on a woman especially after collective experience no woman has had just one experience where they felt uncomfortable that one comment in the street can spark you know 20 other memories of something (laughs) negative happening to them
0: Yeah, I do have a question for you as well. So you mentioned Boudicca Press, where you were talking about books being published, you know, by women and talking about women and issues as well.
1: The, my inspiration to set it up in the first place was the fact that I felt, one, women's, pub, women's writing wasn't, uh, doesn't have as much um, space within the publishing sphere as men's writing does, particularly in speculative fiction, which is what the first anthology was that we published. Um, but also, also um, writing that is from a woman's point of view and explores women's experiences without it being labelled as women fiction, as in like, this is only for women to read. I really felt, I'm I'm a big reader and I really feel like quite often the protagonist is male and it's from a male point of view, the story that's happening and the stuff that's happening to them. And there's a lot of universal stuff that women go through that, should also be explored more in fiction. So that's kind of why I set it up in the first place and what the aim is with it long-term.
0: I think that's a very important point about in not just having that label as women, because so often there's a, there's a W behind something that women do, like women's sports or women's television or you know women's books. So I think that's a very interesting aspect. What kind of works have been published or looking to be
1: published so far Um, so we've only done two anthologies so far the first one was a collection of women's weird fiction short stories because like i said i didn't i don't feel like women are published as widely in that sphere and that was disturbing the beast and then the one it just launched tuesday um (laughs) it, it launched on 25th of march disturbing the body which is a collection of speculative memoir. From women about um, experiences of when their bodies have betrayed them or gone wrong in some way. Um, so it's got a really wide wide subject matter. Um, some talking about breast cancer. One of the authors, Verity Holloway, is talking about her experience with having open heart surgery and the kind of aftermath of that. There's Irinao Koji and it wrote about actually her experience with having COVID, long COVID last year and it lasted four months and then there's chronic illnesses and so there's a wide variety of different women writing about their experiences but they're all explored when I say speculative they're, they're kind of they blur the lines between fiction and true and explore them in very creative different ways <laughs> if that makes sense
0: yeah uh, I attended the event on Tuesday it was very interesting the one with Ferity.
1: yeah yeah and um Chickadilly
0: And I think it was very interesting to explore how obviously your bodies can fail you, and even that is a very unexplored aspect to fiction and the world we live in. And it's really fascinating to hear those voices.
1: Yeah, and many, I mean, many of the voices published in this anthology, you know, it's the first time, even one of them even said to me, it's the first time I've been able to venture out into the world and be seen the way I want to be seen especially with living with a long- term living with a long-term disability or a, a chronic illness kind of means that they're not she didn't feel like she was represented anywhere in the way she wanted to be represented
0: do you have any hopes or goals for Boudicca press you know is there like a next big challenge you'd like to tackle
1: yes <laughs> I think I haven't quite articulated or grounded what that will be yet but the the plan is to keep keep publishing women's voices especially marginalized women or you know women who don't often get to get their their own voice heard this is the first time I've done speculative non-fiction and I think that I think that's a really interesting route to keep exploring especially because I I feel like I have quite a close connection to chronic illness and disabilities because two of my close family members that I grew up with um, live with conditions and it's really interesting to see how you can explore your experience how you can express your experiences for other people to be able to explore and empathize with but without it but with adding that kind of layer of separation that you can do with fictional writing it kind of it enables you to step away from the kind of misery, misery memoir genre and enable you to have a, an open discussion about these experiences and stuff without it becoming that does that make sense
0: yeah I think it's a very inspiring and wonderful thing you know that you're directly making that change by giving these women those voices
1: yeah yeah um, last night's event um, with Louise Kenwood and Laura Elliott, two of the books, the, the authors in the book, they, um, they were fascinating, actually. They know a lot, lot more than me, um, but they were talking about um, the history of women's health in medicine and in medicine and fiction. So part of what they were saying is that the narrative of women's illness is either is either like cure or kill. Um, And there's no there's never been like a history of anything that explores the kind of mundaneness of ongoing chronic illness and what that is like and how this affects women more than men, that kind of nature of illness. And also in the medical industry, it's still very male dominated, but also that all of the kind of training and historical research on the medical industry is very male-dominated and not much has been done on ri- women and their experiences in their bodies. And so, as well as battling these conditions, they're also battling with systematic sexism that's been around for centuries because of the nature of the medical industry.
0: I have a chronically ill friend and she has been misdiagnosed so many times. If, oh, maybe it's just period pain, maybe it's just hormonal and she was dismissed for about two years before seeing a specialist and I know that you know her case is not an isolated case it's almost like this historical women's hysteria has lingered
1: Mm, definitely I think I think that's a very common experience and something that I I feel like has become very um, evident to me from doing this anthology as well is that Yeah, women aren't often believed, especially when it comes to pain and pain barriers. Women aren't often taken seriously or, or believed. And, you know, and even the nature of the research that we're using to try and diagnose and investigate is so ingrained with not believing women and not looking at true scientific reasons for things.
0: Yeah, not believing women seems to be a very common reoccurrence in many of these aspects
1: yes (laughs) that's very true unfortunately
0: so I have one final question to wrap things up what does being a woman mean to you
1: I think that's a very difficult thing to define and I have two two waves of me that wants to argue and one's very skeptical and negative I think it means means having to fight and work a lot harder I feel like it means often being an observer more than a talker and kind of absorbing a lot of stuff that goes on and having to form and fully back up and articulate an opinion, as it were, before expressing it. I know many women don't feel this way, but I, I feel like I, I don't have the freedom to express myself as well or the, at liberty to, but also it means, on another sense, kind of the power of being a more sensitive and Power of observing of of what you get from observing more than talking, and I do I do feel like often with males around me, I'm I am a lot more sensitive to other people's emotions and experiences than perhaps they have needed to be to grow up as a man. Does that make
0: sense? I think completely. You know, there's the whole toxic masculinity. And that men aren't supposed to have these emotions and so many people grow up with that belief that I think that's also partially why women are compared to being too sensitive just because they also have that certain level of suppression yeah but yeah your point makes a lot of sense
1: yeah and when you're you're suppressed you you might not articulate but you you might not be vocal about it but you've Observe a lot more I don't know if that's I'm probably generalising quite a lot But that's how I feel at least
0: So if listeners wanted to find you online Where would they
1: go? I'm on Voice Magazine I'm arts editor on Voice Mag, So you can see some stuff on there And Boudica Press is just Brudicapress.com They want to find out more about the books And the, the publishing work there
0: Thank you for joining us It was great to hear another perspective And explore the deeper issues Surrounding and focusing on the point that I think, obviously, women just aren't believed.
1: Mm, so true, unfortunately.
0: But yeah, thank you for coming on to the podcast.
1: Thank you
2: very much for having me.
0: Next up, we
2: have Diana. Hello, everybody. So I'm Diana Walton, and I'm the director of Upstart Projects, which is the charity that is behind Voice magazine.
0: And what's been on your mind for Women's History Month and International Women's Day?
2: Well, uh, I would say so many things. I've been thinking, of course, as we've all been thinking about Sarah Everard, and I'm feeling just very sad that we are still having these experiences and then these discussions and repercussions around violence against women. Because this feels to me to have been something that just run right through my life and has returned and then seems to be solved or attitudes seem to have changed there seems to be ways ways of dealing with this but then back it comes again so I think I was feeling very sad about this just after International Women's Day
0: yeah understandably yes how would you describe the change that you've said you've seen in your life?
2: Well, I feel I've seen many, many changes because I, I first became aware of feminism way back in the 70s. So I've actually seen pretty much 50 years of women's growing strength and growing influence and growing respect from men for what women can offer. So I would say overall, I feel very optimistic about what seems to be a real rebalancing of men and women's opportunities today as compared to, you know, when I was growing up or, uh, you know, in, that, in those later, later parts of the 20th century. However, then you get something that knocks it all back, whether that's the, the, you know, the Me Too movement and obviously the allegations of sexual harassment, whether it's the inequality of pay that runs through so many industries still, And especially, I think, I was very shocked, as we all were, uh, around the issues at the BBC around difference, difference of pay for very similar work. So you kind of feel all the time you're taking two steps forward and then one step back. But it is definitely two steps forward. I think that's what I would observe from, from my life. And when I look at my mother's life and my grandmother's life and my daughter's life, I think my daughter is benefiting and she has more opportunities than each of the women in our family when I look back over the generations.
0: That's a really nice, like, positive outlook you can kind of see as an overview that I feel that so many people might not be able to grasp if they've only had the experiences from now. Obviously, you mentioned the 70s, which I think is so interesting because so many people disregard the 70s as selfish, like everybody wanted to party. (laughs) I've seen all these critical remarks (laughs) that the 70s was nothing but vanity, (laughs) um, particularly with disco. Yes. You know, behind all of those movements and even with disco. Yes. there's these bigger movements going on Mm. what were your interactions with these movements during that period
2: well I think the end of the 60s really shook things up I think things started to change at that point yeah my experiences of 70s was actually not of disco and all the rest of it (laughs) Um, but was of a whole a whole range of awareness of a variety of issues. I mean, the whole CND movement that had started way back in the 50s, actually, but really strengthened in the 70s to be a strong position against nuclear armament and, and there's a nuclear race, which many of us coalesced around, men and women. And and then that, I would say, fed the women's movement because women felt so strongly about bringing children into a world that might be uh, complex. completely blown up at any time. So I think this was another very strong element of the women's movement at that time. And of course, the, the, the symbol of that is the encampment at Greenham Common, where women just walked from Bristol to Greenham, with their children and their tents and surrounded the the camp and lived there for I think it was about three years in the end, in protest to American cruise missiles being being based there. So my memory of the seventies is of actually really quite a lot of political ferment. Obviously this is pre Um, Thatcherism, pre the return of that Tory of the government that we, you know, dominated the 80s. But I remember, I remember a lot of, you know, political hope and, and political fight in the 70s. And certainly, as I, as I said before, it's when I became aware of feminism, started reading and taking part in, you know, some of these sort of activism movements. So it wasn't all dancing. There was a bit of that, actually. I think I did a bit of disco. What
0: were the activist movements like, you know, if you were to compare the ones from the 70s to, say, the Me Too movement?
2: Well, there wasn't social media. I think that was probably the very big difference. I think in terms of activism, that there were very much the same ways of showing what you feel about things. You know, we went on marches and we occupied and we surrounded and we, you know, a body of people protesting is a very powerful sign isn't it and we saw it with Black Lives Matters last year and you see it now around all all kinds of issues obviously most recently the Sarah Everard um, vigil so people's bodies are probably still one of the most powerful ways in which you can express what you feel about something and I'd say that's very similar then as now but what there wasn't then was the, the potential for reaching lots and lots of people worldwide um, and sharing an issue very, very quickly via social media. So that has transformed communication, I would say, around around issues. Would you say it's progression? I think it certainly enables people to find others who share their concern or their passion. So it makes movements worldwide rather than more local. If you think about Black Lives Matters last year and how quickly that developed into a worldwide demonstration of protest, and and that in itself, of course, gives people a sense of solidarity. If you know there are protests happening in Melbourne and in Berlin and in New York and in London, you feel that you are really part of something that. Will that must make a difference? So I think I think that is a very you know that's a very powerful part of social media, and I and I think that's for the good. Obviously, there are other things that are less good, <laughs> particularly for women. But um, but not I think as a as a as a means of activism, I think it's I think it's good.
0: I think when you say about the most obviously important thing you can do is just protest and be a body. I think that's what's so concerning about this bill to, look, to make it so you can't protest mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. That, that would definitely be a ginormous hindrance yes. towards progression.
2: No, I totally agree. Being able to be peacefully in a place and say, I don't agree with this, or I want you to think more about this is very, very important.
0: Would you have any advice for perhaps young people very interested in learning more? what they could do do you mean about
2: activism or yeah. about so
0: if they were interested in perhaps learning more about feminism or learning about activism maybe even a recommended reading where would you send them
2: Right, yeah, that's a tricky one isn't it because there is just so much now written if t- just take feminism for a moment because i've probably read more about that than than activism yeah um i think that's a really hard one i i'd almost say start now and work backwards uh, if I if I think about the what my daughter reads, it's very different from what I was reading. Partly because many of those battles have been won, or to some extent they've been won. When I was first reading feminist writing, you know, we were still struggling with you know the right to work, and the right to to have a career that is as important as your husband or your partner's. You know, there were many things that now are much, much more widely accepted. So although I still think some of the early writers are very interesting, people like Germaine Greer, Gloria Steinem, Kate Millett and so forth, they you know, they were cutting right through. It is a little bit like studying the suffragettes for a, for a modern young woman, I think, because some of the issues have progressed so much however some issues haven't and of course you know although I say we don't have to you know Fight the fight about the right to work or the right to share housework. Actually, we do. We have read last year that women have done most of the housework during COVID, even though their male partners have been living at home and working from home. So there is still there are still issues about sharing housework, sharing childcare, and having equal opportunities to go to work and to earn the same amount of money, which will come back through through more more modern writing
0: yeah i i definitely think it's come out during the pandemic yes i've had so many stories of women who've had to you know they're not considered essential workers so they've had to leave that job yeah. when the school's closed to take care of the children
2: yes exactly i think i think this is also one of the slightly worrying things at the moment that under stress we revert to relationships between men and women that are, you know, that we slip back, we regress. And I do think the pandemic has, has shown that, as you say, more women have, have lost their work, more women have had to juggle homeschooling and homeworking more women have picked up the domestic side. So this is, this, is, this is really the challenge for the next generation is to make equality real so that while we recognise that men and women should have the same opportunities and deal with life in the same way, we need to make that real so that it works in every situation and it doesn't, it doesn't collapse when, that, when it's under stress.
0: That would be a good, ideal scenario. <laughs> and I think particularly if you do consider the whole history of you know the women's movement that might have seemed impossible 100 years ago but I feel when you're saying one step back two step forwards mm. perhaps it isn't too many steps away yes
2: I hope so I, I think there's another thing actually though that we we need to tackle now which is more marked than it than perhaps it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And that is that opportunities are much, much better for middle-class women than they are for working-class women. And sometimes I think we've kind of lost that in feeling that we have gained quality and opportunity of, of study and work and career. We've sometimes only seen that through the lens of middle-class women. You know, you can see you can see women chief execs, women chairs of boards, women head teachers. There are lots of examples of women in leadership positions and having really significant influence in the world at international level and at national level and in companies and so forth. But that doesn't hide the fact that actually, if you you look at women from poorer backgrounds and women in working class occupations, they are less advantaged often than their male counterparts. So I think that's the thing that we need to be looking at. Don't you?
0: That's definitely an area that I think has been forgotten about. You know, particularly when you go through history, you very much learn about the differences between you know, the unheard voices of the lower
2: social class. Mm-hmm.
0: But I think in the modern period, it has very much been forgotten.
2: Mm. Yes. What are you concerned about? I'm interested in your your perspective, your generation. What what are your key concerns at the moment?
0: Well, I think mine is a little skewed because I have studied history so intently so as much as there are pressing issues from today i can very much appreciate how much progression has been made yes but then also you know if you go back to ancient egypt women and men were equal right
2: yes yes
0: women had lots of places in power in their politics decision makers yes, yes. you know even Cleopatra was the leader. Yes. So it's really interesting how, even as civilization go, they hit that point of equality. And that does very much seem like true equality to mm. me. And then it regressed, mm. and now we're slowly opening things back mm. up. So. I have hope we could get back there.
2: Good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but I do think that's very skewed from a historical
2: uh, point of yeah, view. <laughs> maybe. But we do have to have hope. I do think that society changes if you believe it can change. Um, and, and, and change comes from imagination and aspiration and determination, whether that's for women or, you know, for other groups or for young people, for artists or or whatever. And that's, you know, it's collective action changes perceptions and ultimately also changes institutions. It can take a long time to get to the institutions, but it does happen.
0: I think for me, I don't believe being a woman is a hindrance at all, and I refuse to let it ever be a hindrance. (laughs) And I think that will serve me well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so hopefully if everybody, you know, also found it as their strength, that would help for the yes. better.
2: Yes. You're a young woman working in media. Do you feel that you have the same opportunities as young men in media?
0: In my personal experiences, I have not found any fewer opportunities. Mm. I do not feel with my experiences and in my age, that I've ever been treated differently or felt that a man has wrongly achieved something that perhaps I was restricted Mm. from. I do definitely feel that's a privilege to say Mm. when I've heard counter arguments and experiences from other women. Mm. On the first week of the podcast, we had Demornay telling me her experiences, Mm -hmm. that she's felt that she doesn't find enough women representation in the media and that she's had fewer opportunities. Right, right. For me personally, I've not experienced
2: Mm, that. That's good, that's good. Because I would say that about my life as well, that personally, I have not found that there have been barriers to the things I've wanted to do nor have, like you, I haven't felt that men have got opportunities I wanted. And I think the more of us that feel like that, the more it changes that culture of expectation, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I've wrote an article. I have a series with navigating male-dominated industries. And I do MMA, which is predominantly a male-dominated industry. Yeah. I'll go to the class and it is very often, I'm the only woman. Yeah. And I think to start with... It was kind of a shock for people. But, you know, if you can't see the change, be the change. Yes,
2: indeed. (laughs) Exactly so. When I was at university, I remember there was an engineering department and the first woman ever to enrol as a student, as an engineer, enrolled my year. And there was a sort of sense of, oh my goodness, can a woman be an engineer? Um, But she was brilliant. She was absolutely brilliant.
0: I often find in these male-dominated industries that the women actually tend to be higher performers. I have one question to wrap things up. Okay. What does being a woman mean to you?
2: Right. Well, now, I think for me, I'm very conscious of being one in a line of strong, imaginative women thinking about my grandmother and my mother and now my, my daughter. So I would say I feel part of a certain approach to womanhood that's been part of my life since I was born, a sort of belief in women in the family that I'm in. So I think that's one thing. I've always been very happy to be a woman, proud to be a woman, proud of my mother and grandmother's achievements. They were both working women till they were 87, 88. Uh,
0: that's very impressive. I'll probably be the
2: same. <laughs> you know I'm I, I resigned to it and I have the same hope you know that my daughter and maybe her daughter will also be strong working women I think that's probably it I have a great faith in what women can achieve and I'm you know proud to be able to to to, to be a working woman perhaps that's what our generation really realized that we could be working women and we could completely change whatever we were working in maybe that's it
0: that's a very inspirational And really nice overlook on what's been our International Women's and Women's History Month.
2: Good. (laughs) Good.
0: If listeners wanted to find you online, where would they go?
2: Uh, Probably best is on Twitter. I am at Diana underscore Upstart. Um, Or they can also contact me through voice. I'm there. I'm on the staff page of Voice magazine.
0: Thank you for coming on to this podcast and ending it on what I would hope is a more positive note. Good.
2: Good. Thanks, Al. Thanks very much. For...